morning, church. Good to see all of you. Um, last week, I was up at our sister church in Dewey, Oklahoma, outside of Bartlesville. And um, the reason why I was up there, uh, I've been working with them for the last nine months. And um, today, they get their new pastor. So we are really thrilled for them. Um, pastor Monty and Melissa, and um, their two kids who are both now off at college, but um, they are starting today. And so I wonder if we might just pause and pray for them, if you wouldn't mind doing that. So if you just bow your heads with me while, while we pray over them. God, we uh, are grateful for how your hand uh, moves among um, our brothers and sisters. Uh, we are one tribe but uh, we are in different locations. But we can trust that you're doing your thing up there as well as you're doing your thing right here, and we're grateful for that. And my prayer is, Lord, that today would be an exceptionally joyful day at the Dewey Church. And I pray for Pastor Monty and Melissa as they come and, and uh, be the leaders that you've called them to be in that church. God, would you bless them? Would you bless that congregation? Would you do the work that only you can do amongst them? And I just would ask that your presence would be felt in a powerful way, not just today, but consistently going forward in that church. And we're excited to see all the things that you're going to do, not only through them, but also inside of them and among them. And as a congregation, as a um, another part of the body of Christ, we bless them and ask you to add your blessing to that. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, I also want to say uh, thanks to Pastor James for covering for me last week, and um, it's uh, very nice to be able to, to do things like that and know that things are going to get covered here. So thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Um, the message that I spoke last week, though, uh, I actually did back in July here. It was on Ephesians chapter 2. And um, <clears throat> the thrust of that passage, or at least one of them, that I had talked about at that point was, was, simply, was simply this idea. Um, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And some of you will remember that. But ultimately speaking, we know as good Christian Protestant theology that our good works don't get us into heaven. They don't earn God's favor or grace, but rather his grace and favor creates something within us that we're able to go and do good works. Does that make sense? I mean, we know, I think we know this intuitively, but we need to hear this over and over again. But the thing that I struck me as I was going through that passage, and hopefully it came out in what we were, we were dis discussing back in July, and my hope is that the Dewey Church got this too, is that for the church, this idea of good works um, is within the, the arena or within the theater of relationship, okay? In, inside of this idea of relationship. And it's hard to do good works without other, other people around, you know, and there's, there's this relationship that we have with them. And so that's our theater. That doesn't mean we don't do physical things for people, but ultimately speaking, we're there for relationship. And so today I want to return to this um, idea and suggest that the church gets close but no cigar. Sometimes we just miss that mark ever so slightly. Have you ever played one of those games? Like, you know, you're shooting hoops. My dad was a master at this. 
My dad was um, uh, 30 years old um, when I was born, and so when I was 10 and just starting to understand the grand sport of basketball, my dad was in his 40s and schooled me consistently over and over. And my dad would do this. He'd be way outside the three-point line, and he'd be looking at me, and he'd just do this, and he'd sink it every single time. And it was a taunt. I don't know what it was. Then I turned 17 years old, and the fool tried to take me to the hoop, and I cracked three of his ribs. So I'm just saying. <laughs> That's awful, right? Yeah. But when I would shoot those hoops from that distance, it would just miss. And uh, depending on how old you are, it was either called a brick or an air ball, right? I don't know what the kids call it today, but the point is, is that you get close, but no cigar. Or, man, you were denied. Yeah, that's right. You just missed the mark. And I think that sometimes when we talk relationally within the church, see, this did have a point, this illustration, right? Uh, relationally within the church, we get real close, but then we miss the mark just ever so slightly. And I want to talk about that. And on the whole, I think we've got some work to do as a church. And so to improve, I think we, we need to understand what's happening. So let's start with Jesus, shall we? Is, is that a good idea? Let's just kind of start there and, and work our way. And so I want to look at Matthew, um, uh, early parts of Matthew, and specifically in the early part of this biography. And remember, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four biographies of Jesus. Matthew is the first one. And early on in this biography that Matthew is creating around Jesus, he records a block of teaching in Matthew 5 through 7 that is, is important within Christian theology. And in fact, we've given it a name. It's called Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have heard this before? Yeah, there's this big block of teaching that happens between chapters 5 and 7. And Jesus covers everything from murder and divorce to giving and prayer. So I mean, he's covering some ugly things and he's covering some really cool things. But he, he goes all over it. And, and so we've, we've entitled this Sermon on the Mount. Then something happens right after that block of teaching. Now remember, my fundamental assumption is about any of the ancient writers that they were sophisticated authors and they had an agenda. They're trying to tell us a story. They're trying to make a point. And so when we see this block of teaching, what happens right after it? And, and depending on what those events are or what those stories are, how is that illustrating what this author is trying to communicate? Okay, so we, we need to take a good close look at this because right after Matthew 5 through 7, those, those, those chapters, Matthew tells us three short stories. They're, they're actually little vignettes. They're little scenes. They're kind of in rapid succession. None of them lasts um, more than, you know, five to, to ten um, verses, I guess, but they're very rapid, and you can see them. And I want to talk about each one of them because I think there's something going on here. So let me take the first one, and let's just, let's just read this. This is uh, verses 1 through 4 in Matthew chapter 8. So right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. Keep this in mind. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, hence the name Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. 
Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is interesting. Because, remember, major block of theological teaching. He is trying to teach these people what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, in, in Matthew. And a leper appears. Please understand, this is a huge risk for that leper. Under Jewish law, that leper had to be separate. And if he came into a crowd, he had to shout at the top of his lungs, unclean, so that nobody else would come in contact with him and run the risk of contracting the disease themselves. So the fact that he shows up, because remember, it's very clear here, large crowds followed him. So there's this large group, and here he is, and he's showing up. And he's yelling this term, unclean, unclean. He would have to do that by the law. And you, you must also understand, because of the disease and because of the law, there is fewer um, circumstances or, or conditions of which a human being could be that were, that were more sad or pitiable. They had to be outside the camp. I mean, completely separated so as not to infect everyone else. I mean, this makes perfect sense to us when we get this, and yet you have a human being who is without real human contact other than other people suffering the same condition. This is, this is incredibly sad. That type of despair drives him to Jesus and to take this big risk. So we, we need to understand what's going on here. This person is an outcast. He is an outcast in every sense of the word. And what happens is amazing is that Jesus actually touches him. That would have sucked the air out of the room. That would have been shocking to the people. Here is this rabbi. This is a, a horrible social and will eventually take the life of this animal. It's a terminal disease. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. You have to understand that would have electrified the crowd. As if the teaching that he just gave weren't enough, he goes, he comes across a leopard and he touches him. It's amazing. It's shocking to the crowd. And then something else happens. Here we pick it up again in verse, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, that was a city nearby, <clears throat> a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? What a great question. I wonder how many times Jesus still asks that question. Just a thought. <clears throat> the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus, verse 13, said to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you have believed it would. And the servant was healed at that moment. So, a couple things to point out here. First of all, remember the leper? Jesus touches him. Now Jesus is just showing off. He does it at a distance. 
He's not even in the presence of this person. He says, it'll be done. And the text tells us in that moment, boom, he's, he's healed. That's the John Madden version, by the way. Boom, there he's healed, right? So this is an important piece because we see one picture, we see another picture, but also remember, what is a centurion? It's an officer, more or less, within the Roman legions. This person is not Jewish. Okay? He's from another part of the world, and he's serving in the Roman army in this particular location. He is not even Jewish. By the way, that would have been just as shocking to the crowds. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are two types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. That is clearly a Gentile. What are you doing helping this guy out? And yet, what does he say? What does he say? I've not found anybody in Israel with this kind of faith. Well, if that ain't a slap in the face, right? It's an amazing statement that he makes, and it's followed up by this, I mean, real show of power. Immediately he's healed, and he's not even in his presence. There's no touching. There's nothing that's going, going on where you would actually witness those, those things other than what we read in the text. Third story, verse 14. In Capernaum, remember we're in this city, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. Now remember, even his mother-in-law, oh my gosh, he's healing everybody now. Now, now he's just going crazy. He's actually healing the mother-in-law of Peter. No, I'm just kidding, right? When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. We see this. So, yes, we talk about the mother-in-law, and yes, it's a little humorous, but really it's about the multitudes. The multitudes. And... and I want you to notice that in verses or chapters 5 through 7, there's teaching, but in chapter 8, there's healing. Do you see that? One moves into the other. We move from this idea of teaching into healing. So it is actual teaching backed up by, by acts of power in this particular case, what we often call signs and wonders. And I wonder to myself, I'm like, why healing? Why is this the important factor here? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. Um, one, it's just cool, right? I mean, it's the fact, how many of you would like to see a little more healing in the world today? Yeah, I think so. But infirmity was viewed in, in that part of the world at that time as, as a sign of punishment. And we see this over and over in the text, that there's, if you are infirmed, if there's something, a matter with you physically, then you probably did something to tick off God. What'd you do? It's your fault somehow, right? And you know what? I think sometimes we do this if we're not careful. Sometimes we do this if we're not careful. I could think of some examples, but I'm, I'm going to leave that one alone. But we have to understand that infirmity uh, is part of the human condition, not necessarily punishment from God. Let's quit blaming God for those things. Secondly, healing is a sign of favor. How many of you know somebody who's had some type of miraculous healing, which appears to be miraculous to you? You've experienced this yourself or you know somebody. Um, 
It's a sign of God's favor. It's not a sign of, you know, the punishment aside, but if, if you're looking at when you see God actually move, there's a sig- signal of God's favor. And I think we would all agree that if, if I experienced that healing, or if someone I know experienced that healing, that you would say, okay, God did something here. There's a blessing. There is a favor of God that's on it. And ultimately speaking, <laughs> you can't ignore it. That's the real testimony here, is that when God moves against infirmity of some type, and it is miraculous, and it is complete, and it is utter, and it is amazing, it is really hard to ignore. In John chapter 9, there's this really interesting story about a blind man that Jesus heals. And there's this point where the the, uh, religious leaders of his time are investigating the healing how can, he pro- you know, how can he possibly be healed? First of all, he or his parents were sinners, clearly. There's something going on with the blindness. And this Jesus, he's a sinner too. How is it that he does this? And the blind man says, after like two or three times, the, the blind man says, look, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Black and white. I can't explain it to you. I have no idea the condition of that man's heart. But this is what I was and this is what I am now. Really hard to ignore that right? It's important. So within Matthew, we have this group of, you know, this block of, of teaching that's going on in uh, chapters 5 through 7. And then we have these three stories. And there's movement within the text. We move from an outcast to a non-Jew, which could also be an outcast at times, to the multitudes. There's this movement. There's a shift that's going on in the text. And what I think Matthew is ultimately saying is that this healing, this salvation, this favor, this love, this kingdom of heaven that I was just talking about in chapters 5 through 7, all of that to say this stuff is for everybody. Not just a select few, but everybody belongs inside of this kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount started to become real for actual people afterwards. That make sense? Now, the teaching itself was electrifying. You can just read through it, and if you understand anything about, about Jewish history and Jewish customs, you know that there's some things in there that are truly astonishing. And here he is actually practicing this in a very miraculous um, uh, a way that you can't ignore. Just can't ignore it. And what I've noticed, too, is that our friend Paul, who wrote Ephesians, actually states this even more directly in in his earliest letter. If you look in Galatians chapter 3, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It doesn't get more black and white than that. So if you didn't believe Jesus, let's trust Paul. Make sense? beautiful picture. We're all one. We're all heirs. We're all... And I want you to see this word. Belong. Belong. Now, I mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating. And I want to unpack this, this idea of belonging. 
Because I think it's very important. As it turns out, belonging is a big deal. Um, to the point where it has caught the attention of people outside the church. Um, I want to introduce you to, um, this is Brene Brown. Some of you may have seen her TED Talk. Um, she's a researcher at the University of Houston. Uh, she's written extensively on, on topics, but one of which is belonging and connection between human beings. Um, I came across something not too long ago that really kind of struck me. <clears throat> she was doing a study about connection and belonging with a group of middle schoolers. Yeah, we're all giggling because some of you have been around middle schoolers and they will tell you the truth and they'll tell it to you in spades to your face, right? And um, something that they learned in the course of this, discussion with these middle schoolers is that belonging is not the same thing as fitting in. Did you hear that? Fitting in is not the same thing as belonging. And here's how these middle schoolers defined it, you know, after they teased out all of the words, okay? Belonging is when I can be myself around you. Fitting in is when I have to be like you. Let that sink in. Belonging is why I can be myself. Fitting in is when I have to be like you. In church, we, we say that we want people to believe. You know, we want people to believe in Jesus. But you know what? I think sometimes what we really want them is to behave the way we want them to behave. Can I just be honest about that? I, I, I do it too. I mean, it, 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 it happens. We say we want them to believe in order to belong, but really what we're after from them is we want them to behave in order for them to belong. And those two things are very, very different. And I think both of them can be very, very wrong in how people actually come to faith. Now, let me hit the pause button here because I want to be clear. To be completely fair, there are two sides to this. There is the side of the church, that's what we're dealing with right now, but then there's also the individual, okay? Because the fact of the matter is, most of us do indeed need some kind of change in our lives, right? We know this. Part of the reason why I show up on church on Sunday, not just because this is my job, but because I need a savior, because I need some change in my life. So, let's be honest, most of us do need some change in our life, because we all bring baggage into this thing. We all bring hurts and hang-ups, and, and we, we all have them, every single one of us. And we all need hope and healing, and we need to allow our belief to influence our behavior. Because here's the bottom line, and, I don't, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but that's okay, I've been in trouble before. A Christian jerk is still a jerk. Ooh, he just stepped in it, didn't he? Yeah, because the, the problem is we all have stuff that we're bringing into this thing and we all say things and we have behaviors that don't make a whole lot of sense and, and we may indeed need growth and maturity to get out of that and we probably need some community to help us with that. And like we say around here, come as you are. Oh, but please don't stay that way. 
Be more, be who Christ wants you to be, not who David wants you to be, but who Christ wants you to be. And I think that's important, and I'm going to talk about this more next week. So stick around. There's a whole lot more. So there's the church side and the individual side, but I want us as a church to understand that there is a progression here, something that we must pay attention to. Belong, believe, behave. It moves in that order from right to left. Belong, believe, behave. And I'm going to point something else out to you. Church. Belonging is our work. Belonging is the hard work that we do to help other people feel like they belong. Not fit in, belong. And you know what that requires? We're not going to like this, but here's what it requires. Patience. Oh, Lord. Right? Understanding. And can I be honest, sometimes it requires a little discomfort on my part and on your part because people are messy and we don't have it all worked out. None of us do. Believe, that's their work. They have to come to that point of saying yes to Jesus. That's between them and God. Now, we can't force that. We can certainly try to influence it and, and put some positivity around it and, and to show them. And we can connect with them and we can pray and we can keep offering things like heaven and Jesus and salvation and all. Yes, we can do all of that. But ultimately speaking, that the belief part is their work. You cannot coerce them. That is not actual belief. We can't do that. And here's the real issue. This is the one that, that I don't like. But it's the one that's true. Behavior is the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit has to actually do the work inside of them to change them. Now, again, does that mean that it's completely hands-off? No, this is not laissez-faire types of, of Christianity. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am saying is that we must understand our role. It is not to change their behavior. That is the Spirit's job, and it is His right only. We can help. We can... We can uh, Show them what it means to conduct yourself as a, as a believer. We need to educate folks on how we do things here, but that's not about fitting in. That's really about the Spirit doing His job and aiding it. And here's the thing. If you are going to talk to someone about that, you had better be prayed up. That has got to be prompted by the Spirit for you to do. Now, there are times when you are in leadership that you may have to do it, um, but again, you don't do it by yourself and you're always prayed up about it. That is the Spirit's realm. That's really hard because I have to be patient because the Spirit doesn't operate on my timetable. You ever wonder that sometimes when Jesus you know, says, I am, I am willing to be clean, and bam, he's, he's clean. It, I think it's not just the cleansing part that gets me excited. It's the bam, it happened right now part. <laughs> you know what I mean? To me, that's the miraculous part. The miraculous part is it's immediate. But we live in a microwave generation. Not a crockpot. <laughs> or Instapot, that's right. I don't have one of those. I'm kind of scared about that, I've got to be honest. Here, here's the thing. 
When we started Thrive now, um, basically three years ago, we knew that relationship was going to be key to this. We knew it. Um, we didn't really know exactly how that was going to work out or what it really looked like or how it was going to translate into this area. And, and, and we've had to pivot several times and uh, make some changes. And, but i got to tell you, just as a leader, I don't want people to have to fit in here. That's, I am not interested in that. You can go to any other church and do that. But what I really want is I want people to belong. I want them to feel like they belong to us. And, and I, it doesn't mean that we get it right every time. We don't. I, know, I understand that. But we're, we're going to continue to move down that path to get better at it. And we've missed opportunities, but we're going to keep learning. Uh, that's just the bottom line for me, this idea. Look, if I want people to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and I want them to behave in a way that's pleasing to him and that will change the world ultimately, the only way that I can influence that in this diagram is to help them belong to something bigger than themselves. That's it. And so what I want you to do today as a church is to kind of look around. Look at the people who are next to you. And I want you to ask yourself, do you belong to them? <laughs> you can't be looking at your spouse. You've got to look at somebody else. <laughs> look across the church. <laughs> but also, can you say they belong to me? And those are the two pieces of this puzzle. And I was very kind of um, confused at first because it really felt like this was something that God wanted to say to our church again. And I'm like, God, I just covered this. But when I think about it, everything that we do on Sunday morning, and we talk about this among our, our leaders and team, is, is just we want people to feel like they're at home. That's really about belonging, isn't it? We want people to belong. Hopefully you feel like you belong in your home. What a horrible thing if you don't. But then again, the early Christians all experienced that. Some of them were completely disowned by their families. Guess what? Church became their surrogate home. That's our role here, to belong to belong to one another, and for others to belong to us. And please understand, I do not have my head in the sand. That is hard work. One of the early books that influenced us was called No Perfect People Allowed, and the author wrote very clearly that a culture of connection takes a tremendous amount of energy, and it does. It does. But it's so worth it. So worth it. Because I get to come here every Sunday and see all of you. And that means everything. I belong to you, you belong to me, we belong to this thing called Thrive Church.